0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the fifth chapter, verses 25 and 26, verses 25 and 26 in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now here those who were present last Sunday evening will remember and notice we have again One of these statements by our blessed Lord and Savior, which is introduced by the formula verily, verily. We had a similar one last Sunday evening when we were looking at the 24th verse. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death and life. I indicated last Sunday night that uh, this formula always means that our Lord himself was indicating that what he was about to utter was unusually important and significant. It is his own distinction. We know and believe that everything he said, that every word that he ever uttered, is of vital importance. But he himself, now and again, went out of his way to emphasize certain particular statements. And he did so in this particular manner, by saying, verily, verily. You can translate it, if you like, like this. Amen, amen. In other words, he calls for special attention. Truly, truly, if you like would be an equally good uh, translation of the words. And therefore we see once more as we look at these two verses this evening that we are looking at something that our Lord himself obviously regards as of supreme importance for us. Now, let us look at it in the light of its own context. In that verse we looked at last week, the 24th verse, our Lord was making a comprehensive statement. He was uh, telling those people, as we saw, that they must listen carefully to everything he said. Whosoever he said heareth my words, really understands them, gets their meaning and significance, does something about them. Whosoever does that, he says, can be certain of two things. One is that he has everlasting life, and the other is that he shall not come into condemnation. In other words, he made there what you may regard as a comprehensive statement. There, in one verse, he put the whole of the gospel. Now, having done that, he proceeds to take these two things that he there said together, and he now pays attention to them and elaborates them one by one. Now, that's a very common procedure on his part. And indeed it is a a very wise procedure on the part of any speaker. It's something that you get not only in speaking, you get it in music. You'll get certain pieces of music, certain symphonies, in which you are given, as it were, an account of the themes that are going to be worked out. They're given all together at first. Then they're taken up one by one and worked out. You get it in the overture to an opera. The themes are already indicated. Then they're worked out. Well, now that's the sort of thing our Lord did here. He states it all. Then he picks them out one by one. And here he takes the first of these two. And as I say, he puts it before us as he put it before those people by means of these solemn words, verily, verily. In other words, he takes up this whole question of his power and his ability to give everlasting life. Listen to what I'm saying, he says. The hour is coming, and now is. It's already come. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. What's he referring to here? Well, there are those who might think that he's referring here to what happened when he raised the son of the widow of Nain, or Jairus' daughter, or Lazarus, from the dead. And in a sense that is perfectly true, but I think it's quite obvious that that wasn't his primary meaning because he goes on to say in this next verse, and that's why it should be taken with verse 26, As the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. That, as I say, the thing to which it refers, the whole context suggests that, the whole of the Gospels suggest that, that our Lord was not simply referring to his miraculous power and his ability to raise the physically dead, there's something much bigger and much more important, something that he was really sent by God into the world to do, and that was to quicken the spiritually dead, and to give new life and spiritual life to those who hitherto had been outside the life of God. In other words, he is referring here to what was called elsewhere in the scripture, regeneration, or the rebirth, if you like. Now, he's already been talking about this earlier in this selfsame chapter. Do you remember how, as these Jews were remonstrating with him, because he'd healed this impotent man on the Sabbath? Our Lord said, verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that he may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man. In other words, he goes on repeating this, that the Father has sent him to do two things, to quicken the dead and to exercise final judgment. Very well then, here is our subject this evening. Regeneration. The power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to give us new life, to give us a second birth. Now, you notice there in that 20th verse that he said that these Jews would marvel when they saw him exercising this power. He turns to them in effect and he says something like this. He says, are you surprised that I've been able to heal this impotent man? Wait a minute, he says, you're about to see things that will really cause you to marvel. When you see me quickening the dead... And eventually when you see me exercising final judgment, that's the thing that will cause you to marvel. Now here he tells them, the time is coming and now is when I'm going to exercise this first power of quickening the dead. Now the thing I want to emphasize is that he reminds these people and indeed presses it upon them that this work of his is something that is going to fill them with a sense of marvel and of wonder and of amazement. And, of course, the Gospels are full of that very thing. He told them that it would cause them to marvel, and as he went on with his work, you see them marveling. What did they marvel at? Well, they marveled at this, that he should spend his time with people like publicans and sinners, And indeed, on one occasion, he told them very plainly and very bluntly. He says, you know, John the Baptist came preaching unto you and called you to repentance, and you didn't listen to him, but he said, the publicans and the harlots did, and there they are crowding into the kingdom before you. As he went about and preached and exercised his authority and power, men and women who were regarded as completely hopeless and entirely outside and beyond the pale, were suddenly being transformed and became new men and women, and everybody looked on in marvel and wonder and amazement. And then you remember when you hurry on to the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you see the same thing there. Do you remember what we are told? How after that extraordinary event on the day of Pentecost, when the Apostle Peter had preached and 3,000 people had been converted, And then when he he, he and John had healed that lame man at the gate of the temple, you're told that the authorities met together and had a conference about this. And they were astonished at all this. They said, who are these men? They're ignorant and unlearned men. And yet look at what's happening. They couldn't understand it. They marveled. He said they would. They couldn't understand these things. And then take a very notable instance of all this. Look how they marveled at what happened to Saul of Tarsus. There was something that shook them. It's indeed, even up to a point, shook the church herself. Here is the chiefest persecutor of Christianity, the man who hated Christ and all his works and everything he'd ever heard about him. Here is this man suddenly preaching Christ absolutely changed a new man. And indeed, Paul himself writes to the Galatians and he says, you know exactly, he says, what happened. Everybody was astonished. All they knew was this, that the one who had formerly persecuted the church with such vigor and vehemence was now preaching the faith that he once persecuted and condemned. They marvel. What is this? Here is something that's coming to the world Thus, changing people, turning them upside down, as it were, making new men and women of them. Marvel. And you know this gospel has continued to have that effect throughout the ages and the centuries. When this gospel comes in its truth and in its power, it does things that amaze and astound people. For what they see is that men would be in hopeless drunkards, if you like, and would lost their willpower and had lost everything and were just sheer helpless in the hands of some such terrible sin. Everything had been tried. Psychotherapy, training, friends, everything and everything had failed. Suddenly such a man, through listening to one sermon, becomes absolutely free. A new man delivered from his besetting sin. And the world looks on in marvel and wonder and amazement. Now read the lives of all the saints, read the stories of all the great religious revivals and reawakenings, and that is what you'll always find. The world looked on in astonishment at the Protestant Reformation. It looked on in amazement at the Puritans. It looked on in in an astounded manner 200 years ago here in this city of London While a man like George Whitfield would preach on Kennington Common and what was regarded as the lowest in society were suddenly transformed. They marveled at it. What is this, they said? What is this peculiar thing? Now that has been its effect throughout the running centuries. And I'm emphasizing all this because it is a very essential part of this gospel. Indeed, I want to go so far as to say this, that when this power of Christ is exercised in any life and gives new life, the person himself or herself who receives it also marvels. Indeed, I'll go further and I'll suggest this that if you, my dear friend, do not marvel at yourself sometimes, I don't think you're a Christian at all. Our Lord here says explicitly that when he gives life to a soul, it causes marvel and amazement, and it does. There is none who marvels more than the individual himself or herself. I've quoted the Apostle Paul already, let me quote him again. I always feel that that was exactly what he was saying in the 20th verse of the second chapter of his epistle to the Galatians once more. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. You see it, don't you? I live, yet not I. He doesn't understand himself. He's marveling at himself. Something's happened. He is the same man. He isn't the same man. Christ has come in. The life has entered. Now that's it. Now this, I say, has to be emphasized for this reason. That there are so many who still think of uh, Christianity in such a way as to exclude altogether this element of marvel and wonder and amazement. They think they're Christians, but they don't marvel at themselves, and they don't cause anybody else to marvel. Oh, they've got an idea, you see, that Christianity means something like this. That you just live a good life, you certainly need forgiveness. You ask God for it and he gives it you and there it is. That's Christianity. Doing your best, living a good life, being forgiven when you fail. And that's the whole of Christianity. They think that Christianity is just a question of attending a place of worship now and again and keeping within certain limits. And that is Christianity. They've always thought they're Christians. There's nothing surprising about it. Always brought up to do it and they've done it. They're not surprised. Nobody else is surprised. But the question is, my dear friends, is that Christianity? And I want to try to show you this evening that it isn't Christianity. That is not Christianity. That's morality. That's religion. Christianity means receiving this life from Christ. It means becoming a partaker of the divine nature. It means that he has quickened us, has put into us this vital principle of spiritual being and life, which changes everything. That's Christianity. I've already referred to a man like George Whitfield, that mighty preacher and evangelist of 200 years ago, Perhaps the most eloquent preacher, the greatest spiritual orator that England has ever known. How did he become a Christian? Well, he tells us himself. He was religious. He was concerned about God. He was trying to live a good life. And he thought he was a Christian. But his friend whom he'd met in Oxford called Charles Wesley gave him the loan of a book written by a Scotsman of the name of Henry Scougal. And the title of the book was The Life of God in the Souls of Men. And as George Whitfield read this book by Henry Scougal, he came to the conclusion that he'd never been a Christian at all. He knew nothing about the life of God in his own soul. And he realized that all his religion was a kind of legalism, a kind of religiosity. That it wasn't a thing that Scougal was able to show so clearly was taught in the New Testament by the Lord himself and by the apostles. And he saw that he'd never been a Christian. And he began to seek this. And he eventually found it. God gave him this life. Christ imparted it to him. And he became that flaming evangelist. But you notice how he arrived at it? It was his discovery that true Christianity means having the life of God in one's own soul. That's the thing the Lord is speaking about here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that here shall live, I've got this power, he says, even as my Father has this power. Well, now, then, my friends, I ask my obvious question: Have you received this life? Is the life of God in your soul? Has Christ given you life? Listen to what it means, listen to what it involves. Let me try and tell you something about it. Let me expound his own teaching to you. Here's the first thing. To receive this life means a profound and a radical change in the whole of one's being. You notice his own comparison. He compares it like passing from death to life. Is there anything bigger than that? Can you give me any dimensions that are greater than that? Passing from death to life. Why it's the biggest change conceivable? There's nothing bigger, greater, deeper, more radical than that. Yet that's his term. Listen to the other New Testament terms. He used the same term to Nicodemus. You must be born again. The difference between not living and being born. Listen to some other terms of his, new creation, regeneration. Listen to the apostle, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things are become new. That's it. That's the biblical language. That's what it means to be a Christian, that you've undergone this profound change. Everybody must undergo it. For we're all born in sin and shapen in iniquity. We're all dead in trespasses and sins. We must be born again, everybody. And that is what it means. Well, now then, let's be clear about this. Becoming a Christian, therefore, does not just mean that because we've taken up religion that our life is modified somewhat. Oh, how many are deluded by that thought. Ah, they say, I suddenly realized I was living a bad life. I saw I'd got to be a better man. I decided to be a better man. And they think that makes them Christian. Modification of the life. An improvement in the life. Taking up certain views. Deciding to go to a place of worship, whereas they'd never gone before. You know, there's all the difference in the world between returning to church Between returning to Sunday services in a building and receiving the life of God in your soul. Oh, what a difference there is. Very well then, it doesn't mean any of those things. Well, what does it mean? Well, these are the terms used in the scriptures. It means receiving a new heart. Listen to God saying it through the prophet Ezekiel. I will take out of you, he says, the stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. A hardness is taken and something new and warm and living is put in its place. A heart of flesh. It means receiving a new nature. That a new principle of life comes into us which just wasn't there before and it changes everything. Or as it's sometimes put, it means that there is a change in the controlling disposition of our life. What does that mean? Well, it means something like this. This great change about which I'm speaking doesn't give a man a new faculty or a new ability. It doesn't make a man who was unintelligent intelligent. It doesn't change one's essential temperament or anything like that. That remains exactly as it was before. Saul of Tarsus was a very violent persecutor of the church. He was an equally violent and vehement preacher of the gospel. That kind of thing, it leaves exactly where it was. What is changed then? Oh, what is changed is this. This governing disposition of the soul. There's a man you see, look at him, you know him, you know he's got certain abilities. Ah, yes, but what are they governed by? That's the thing. What's the controlling principle in his life? Well, there he is as an unregenerate man, as a non-Christian. Well, he's interested in the world and in life. He wants to make money, he wants to get on, he wants to have his good time. That's his governing disposition. Out for himself, out for his own enjoyment, out for his own advancement. So all these powers and faculties that he has are governed by this governing disposition. What is this new birth, this receiving of new life? Ah, it's a change in that governing disposition. He's still got his same abilities, his same faculties, his same propensities, yes. But instead of them all being guided and run in that direction, this new principle comes in that turns them in an utterly different direction. There was Saul going in one way. He turns right around and goes in the other if you like, you can look at it like this. Think of a steam engine. There it is on a given rail facing, if you like, for Brighton. And it's going to draw those carriages there. But turn it round. Put it in the other direction. It's the same engine. The same pressure of steam. The same everything. But it's going in an entirely different direction. That is what happens to a man when this new life is given to him by Christ. In temperament I say he's the same and his abilities are the same. Oh, but the whole life is different. He says, whereas once I was like that, now I am something which is entirely new. Oh, I can't add to what the apostle says. When this happens to a man, he says, all things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. He says, I am a new man. I seem to be in a different world. Nothing looks to me as it looked before. He's seeing everything in a different manner. Why? Well, there's this new principle of life within him. That's what it means. Well, now, obviously, in the second place, this is something which is mysterious. Something which is entirely beyond our understanding. I want to emphasize that. Christianity is mysterious because Christianity is miraculous because Christianity is supernatural and divine. If you think you're going to understand this, you're making a great mistake, my friend. Our Lord said when you see it, you're going to marvel. And even here, look at it. Listen to this. Doesn't it sound a contradiction? Isn't it paradoxical? The hour is coming, he says, and now is, when the dead shall hear the noise of the Son of God. Nonsense, says the man of the world. How can the dead hear? Well, exactly that's it. On a natural level, it is sheer nonsense, isn't it? But once you bring in God and the supernatural and the divine, it's no longer nonsense. But if you try to understand it well, you can go on trying to all eternity and you'll never succeed. It's God. The Bible's full of that. Didn't you feel that as we were considering the case of this impotent man at the very beginning of this chapter? Here our Lord comes to a man who'd been paralyzed completely for 38 years and was just lying there on his mat at the pool of Bethesda. And the Lord comes to a man who can't move and do nothing at all for himself and says, Take up thy bed and walk. Sure lunacy, isn't it? But that's what he said and that's what happened. And yet men in their folly are still still trying to understand this. Nicodemus, there he is in the third chapter, he tried to understand it. How can these things be, he says? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? He was trying to understand this. You can't understand it. Marvel not that I said unto thee, said our Lord to him, Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit, And when a man is born of the Spirit or receives this life from Christ, he can't understand it. Nobody can understand it. He says, I don't know what happened, but it's happened. I find myself like this. He can't give you an explanation. Nobody else can. Why, I say, it is because it is miraculous and divine by definition. Or to put it in another way, This is something which is done entirely by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the case of the impotent man proves that, doesn't it? He couldn't move. He was helpless outside the pool of Bethesda, and as I say, had been there for 38 years. He can't do it, and yet it was done to him. It was done to him by Christ. Every other case is exactly the same. That's only a picture. That's a sort of parable. Every man who becomes a Christian becomes a Christian because of what the Lord Jesus Christ does to him. I want to make this particularly clear. To become a Christian is dependent upon nothing whatsoever in us. Nothing at all. It doesn't depend at all upon our psychology. Ah, you know the the modern theory, don't you? Religious people, of course, they have the religious complex. And if you don't have the religious complex, religion won't interest you. And, of course, you'll never be religious. It all depends whether you happen to be born with the complex or not. One man's a scientist, another a poet. One's very good at music, another's very good at art, just born like that, happen to have that odd kink, that twist in the brain, in that odd convolution there somewhere, and well, there it is. It's a matter of our psychology. My dear friend, if you read the Bible from beginning to end, you'll find that theory won't hold water for a second. Then on top of that, read the whole history of the Christian church. Indeed, analyze this congregation. Analyze the Christians in it. And you know what you'll find? You will find men and women of every conceivable combination and permutation of character, psychology, temperament, and every other term that you can possibly think of. Look at the differences in those apostles. John and Peter and then Paul. Absolutely different. It's always been the same. Go back again to that 18th century, you couldn't find two more different men than Whitfield and John Wesley. Whitfield, impulsive, emotional, mightily oratorical, John Wesley, logical, staid, calm, not an orator at all, yet both preaching the same gospel, both testifying to the same experience. Oh, I say this nonsense about psychology doesn't stand the test of examination for a single second. No, no, it doesn't matter what our psychology is. In the same way, it doesn't matter at all what our ability is, nor what our understanding is. I read certain textbooks even on theology now and again, and they distinctly give the impression that you've got to be pretty able before you can be a Christian. It's a matter of intellectual understanding. If Christianity were a philosophy, of course, that would be perfectly true. But actually, it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter whether you're able. It doesn't matter whether you're entirely lacking in ability. It doesn't matter whether you're the greatest philosopher in the world, or you may be the most dark and benighted ignoramus and fool that has ever entered into this life. It doesn't make the slightest difference. I'll tell you another thing that doesn't matter. Whether you're naturally good or bad doesn't make the slightest difference here. Of course, there are some people who are born nice and good people and others are not. And I'll grant this much to the psychologists. There are some who are born with a religious sort of inclination. They rather like doing this sort of thing. It doesn't make them Christians, as I've said. But they're more naturally religious than others. What I'm saying is this, that it doesn't make the slightest difference. Side by side in the Christian church from the very beginning until tonight, you have people, some of them who were naturally good and some of them were naturally very bad. Some who seem to be like little angels always and some who are veritable devils. And there they're sitting together in the same church, they're saints in the same kingdom of God. Some who'd always been religious, some who'd never gone near a place of worship and who blasphemed it all. It doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Well, because we are all dead, and all equally dead from this standpoint. It doesn't matter what differences there are. The one thing that matters is, have we this life in us? And by nature, not one of us has this life in us, for we are all dead in trespasses and sins. This, I say, is entirely his work. The power is entirely his, and it's in his vice. Look at him approaching this man, this impotent man, go back to it again. Here, I say, is the almost ludicrous position. A man lying helplessly on a mat for 38 years suddenly is accosted by someone who says to him, Take up thy bed and walk! And he was healed. And he took up his bed. He was healed immediately. And took up his bed and walked. What happened? Oh, I can tell you what happened. That man had no power. He was an impotent man. He was one of this great company of blind and lame and halt and impotent folk that had been carried there day after day. And yet our Lord comes to him and says, Take up thy bed and walk. What madness! How can a man who's impotent take up his bed? How can he stand and walk? Don't you see what happens? The power is in the voice of the Lord. As he speaks, the power enters the man. He's given life and he proves he's got it. He doesn't by his own efforts. Suddenly stand up, he'd spent his lifetime trying to do that. Can't you see him trying to struggle to get into that pool to be healed? He can't move. All his efforts bring him to nothing. And suddenly he stands. What happened to him? As our Lord uttered the words, the life entered. And the man had received the power. And so it is always. Do you see our Lord standing there outside the grave of Lazarus who'd been buried for four days? Doesn't the thing seem to be sheer madness there? He stands and he says with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And he that was dead came forth. Can a dead man lift himself up to life? Resurrect himself as it were? Bring himself out of the grave? Of course he can. Where did the power come from? It was in the vice. Lazarus, come forth! And as he spoke, the power entered, and the man had life, and he came out. The Son of Man, he says here, hath power to give life. He has life in himself. He quickeneth whom he will. The power is altogether in Jesus Christ. Thank God for this. That is why I say that your psychology doesn't matter. Your ability doesn't matter. It's he who puts in the life. And he can put it into the blindest, darkest, hot and tot, As he can into the greatest philosopher at this moment. He has the life and the power. And he gives it. And because it is his life and power, he can give it to anybody. He can give it to everybody. And he can give it this evening here in London to the blackest, the vilest, the foulest character in the metropolis at this minute. He can give it to such a character as easily as he can to the most naturally religious and good and polite and modest and chaste person who has never even thought of doing evil. It's his life! And it's because it's his. It is open to everybody. I've said it before, I say it again from this pulpit. That is what makes this work of preaching the gospel such a romance. That is why I say again, I have no need to know you one by one. I know that you're all dead in trespasses and sins, as I myself. We're all born like that, and we all need this life. It doesn't matter what you are, nor who you are. I'm not interested in your particular sins. I'm not interested in what you've been doing. It doesn't matter. What you need, what all need is life. And the life is in him, and he can give it to whom he wills, and he gives it. The power is in him. It's nothing in us because we are dead. Thank God for this. If our intelligence and ability to understand and a thousand and one other things came in to this question of making us Christians, oh, how unequal it would be that here inequality is entirely banished and we're all one. We all need this life and he alone can give it us. So, my dear friend, the question for you and for everybody at this hour is this. Have you got this life? Has he given it to you? Have you heard him calling your name? John, Mary, Martha, whatever you are, Lazarus. Has the mighty word come to you and awakened you and called you out of your grave and bondage of sin Hear him, I say. Hear his words. He appeals to you to do so. Verily, I say unto you, the hour cometh, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. O blessed day, when it came, and when heard, and when was aware of life. How do you become aware of life? Listen. Listen. The moment he puts this life of his into you, you will know that a tremendous change has taken place in you. You can't help knowing it. You'll feel that there's a new principle in you. How will you know that? Well, I'll tell you. You'll begin to get interested in these things. You'll begin to think about your own soul and about God and about your relationship to him and about life and death, you'll begin to get an interest which you've never had before in all these spiritual things. Not only that, you'll begin to understand them. You may have listened to the gospel many, many times before, but it didn't speak to you and you didn't understand it suddenly you find yourself understanding it. It has meaning for you. It has relevance for you. Then you begin to feel a desire to know more about it. And then you begin to find even the Bible getting interesting. Do you enjoy the Bible, my friend? Do you like reading it? Do you understand it? Does it speak to you? Let's be quite clear about this. If you don't have any sort of enjoyment of the Bible, you know you have no right to regard yourself as a Christian. Peter says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that he may grow thereby. The babe doesn't understand why it likes the milk, but it does and it wants it. Have you a desire for this word of God? Do you want to understand it more? Do you want to be able to live it better? Tell me, does prayer mean anything to you? Is prayer becoming a little bit easier? Do you long to know how to pray? Have you desires after this? And then another way you can tell very easily whether you've got this new life or not. When this new life comes into you, the world becomes a very different place for you. The things that formerly charmed you now repel you. You see that they're the most dangerous things to your life and to your soul. The things you gloated in and things that ravished your heart. You see them as the enemies of your soul. And you turn away from them. You long to be holy, to be clean, to be chaste and to be pure. These are some of the tests. And you begin to like God's people. The people whom you regarded as the greatest bores in the world before. You now begin to draw near to them. You want to hear something more from them. You want to spend your time in their society and in their company and fellowship. I ask you in the name of God, have you got new life? Do you enjoy your religion? If you don't, it's your religion. It isn't this living thing that Christ gives. There are some of the tests. Shall I close by putting it like this? Why is it absolutely essential for us to have this life? I've said all along that it is. Without this life, we are not Christians. Why must I have this life? Well, here is one answer. Obviously, this life is absolutely essential before we can ever hope to have any fellowship with God. Why? Well, listen to the psalmist. He, who is he that shall enter into the temple of the Lord? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue nor doeth evil to his neighbor. Listen to another. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall enter into his, stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul to vanity nor sworn deceitfully. Listen to another. Listen to David saying it. Thou requirest truth in the inward parts, My dear friends, there's no need to argue about this. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What conquered hath Christ with Belial? What kind of fellowship can there be between light and darkness? And God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And how can I have fellowship with him unless I have something of his own life within me? It's absolutely essential. Have you ever thought of it? Man as he is, is dark, and he cannot commune with God. Oh, how shall I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear and on my naked spirit bear that uncreated beam? Have you ever thought of being in the presence of God? When you get on your knees and try to pray, remember you're speaking to God, that eternal light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is a consuming fire. Without this life that Christ gives, there is no hope for anyone enjoying fellowship and communion with God. But listen, it is equally and more essential before we can ever hope of entering into heaven What's going to happen to us when we die? We want to go to heaven, but listen. The fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. They will have no entrance. Listen again. There shall in no wise enter in Anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or that maketh a lie, but they only that are written in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven would be hell for anybody who got there without this life that Christ lives. People find it very difficult even to listen to a sermon of any length at the present time. Oh, they say, we're not interested, it's boring. What do you think heaven would be like to you, my friend? They spend the whole of the time there in worshipping and praising God, in extolling his virtues. It would be hell, wouldn't it? If you got there without this life that Christ gives, it is absolutely essential Oh, I plead with you. Have you heard the voice of the Son of God? He gives life. Because if you haven't this life, this, according to the last chapter in the Bible, is your fate. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, Let him be filthy still, need I say any more, to enjoy the life of God and to spend eternity in his holy presence. It is absolutely essential that we should have a life corresponding to his. That is the very life that Christ came to give. If you have realized that you haven't got it, ask him for it. Your goodness, your religion, your intelligence will avail you nothing. You need the life of God in your soul. And whatever you may have been until this very night, it doesn't matter. Ask. And he shall receive. Seek. And he shall find. Knock, become desperate. And it shall be opened unto you. Have you heard? The voice of the Son of God. For if you have. You are alive. You have received life. Life i Amen. Amen.